Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to This Week in Marvel, episode number 490, Flippin' 9. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Lorraine! Zink. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Uh, Very excited. We are here to tell you all about what's happening this week in Marvel that we're super hyped about. We got games and comics, movies, TV, all kinds of stuff. It's a jam, jimity, jam, jam packed week. Lorraine, mm, tell me something delicious. good. What is good? Um, I am days away from owning a home. Yay! Woo, 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 woo. Pew, 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 pew. Fingers crossed, everybody. Send me those good vibes. <laughs> and send her $40. Uh, if you get $40 from every listener, then that should be very helpful. Yeah, if everybody could um, send me a house payment, that would be preferable. <laughs> yeah, it's intense watching those those house payments go out of the, the money bank. Yeah, no thank you. That's why I got my house for free. Ooh, uh, if only. <laughs> If only. What about you, Ryan? What's going on? Besides you're wearing a muscle tee today. <laughs> so I I had to... Owning a house means if you have a lawn, then means you have to muscles. deal with the lawn. So I went outside at like 7.45, 8 o'clock and mowed the lawn. And That's dealt real with some dad stuff. stuff. Yeah, it was real dad stuff and doing all these different things, talking to my neighbor because there's like a baby bird in his yard and he's, he's confused about what to do with it and like... You know, remember when we were city folk? (laughs) (laughs) I still live in I live in the Bronx. It's just wild to have. I I have this like perfect like mix between urban and suburban, but it's it's just been a morning. So I didn't have a chance to fully get humaned after (laughs) this morning. But, you know, being humans overrated. Yeah. Who needs it? Not me. 100 percent. No, I'm excited. I got some really great Marvel Legends in recently. I got some amazing Transformers toys in recently. That's the priority here. Also, the child is fine and the wife is fine. But like the toys are great right now. And it's (laughs) that's really where my head's at. Yeah, that that seems legit. I'm not allowed to buy any more toys until after we move. I bought a hundred dollar Transformer in bed at midnight the other night. Like. (laughs) That's where I'm at. So let's move on. Let's talk right, about right. some exciting stuff because Lorraine, the most important television show in the history <laughs> of the universe is premiering oh this week. If you are listening to this on Friday, May 21st, it is already there. I am, of course, talking about Marvel's MODOK on Hulu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ryan and I have been watching episodes. We love it with all of our heart. It is so delightful and incredible cast. It's so funny. Um, I cannot wait for everybody to watch it on May 21st. Internationally, it's also available on Disney Plus Star in select countries and on your Hulu in the United States. Yeah, so all episodes drop on Hulu in the States now on Disney Plus Star. It is dropping weekly. I will say, keep your eyes open for a cameo from someone with a great mustache. Oh, no, really? Yeah. I haven't got to that episode yet. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Your boy makes a little cameo in the show. I didn't voice it, but I'm there. Is he like, hi, I'm Ryan. (laughs) It's me, Ryan Padagos. It's more like, it's a me, Ryan. It's a Uh, me, Ryan. They made a very specific Mario-esque choice for for my character. And you know what? Bloop, 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 bloop. I'm here for it. Yeah, I grow grow larger when I uh, eat a mushroom and I throw fireballs when I get a little uh, flower. And when you get a star, you're like, boop. (laughs) 
Anyway, I'm very <laughs> hyped up this morning. I will say I'm mourning the loss of a singer from one of my favorite bands. Oh, I'm sorry. Jack Terrycloth, the singer of World Infernal Friendship Society. He was only in his early 50s and he passed away. Um, if anybody has never listened to them, go to YouTube, listen to them. I'll give you recommendations. You can hit me up on Twitter, Agent M. Cabaret-esque, theatrical, punk rock, anarchist. It's... It was so amazing. They would set fire to their like symbols and like the, the the percussionist. She would set fire to her symbols. And Jack was just one of the greatest frontmen I've ever heard. But I was listening to them this morning, being both concurrently sad and hyped up. And that is more powerful. Listening to them was more powerful than the coffee that I had. So I'm all over the place right now. I apologize. All right, let's uh, move on because we're talking about Marvel Studios Black Widow. We got new featurettes. We're getting so close because Marvel Studios Black Widow, you can experience it in theaters and on Disney Plus with premiere access on July 9th. What was the new special look we got? Oh, it was so great. We get to see a scene between Natasha and Yelena, and we're getting like their real sister vibes as they are doing this awesome car chase. And also, I really appreciated this because this clip debuted on the 2021 MTV Movie and Television Awards, during which Scarlett Johansson received the Generation Award. Mm. Also, I believe she was slimed by her husband, not perhaps understanding that that's the Kids' Choice Awards, (laughs) but that's neither here nor there. Um, Just truly delightful. Watched a little hot second of the clip this morning. Also, another clip debuted at the 2021 MTV Movie and Television Awards, which was for Marvel Studios' Loki. Mm. Um, It introduced Mobius, played by Owen Wilson, along with Loki, having a little chat in the elevator, going through sort of what the TVA is and all of that kind of stuff. It is chef's kiss. Also, every time I hear him say it, Mobius, it makes me so happy. (laughs) Just a cool name, Mobius and Mobius. He's rad. He's awesome. But the love that the internet has shown for Miss Minutes is... <gasps> yeah. And we knew. We knew early on, like when we first saw images of her in, you know, when we were hearing about the show and seeing mm-hmm. things, I think everybody was like, Miss Minutes is going to be the jam. Everybody's yeah. going to love her. And they do. She's wonderful. because yeah, she's bomb. I was going to say, I love the way you say the MTV Movie and Television Awards. Like you add- Instead of TV? Instead of TV, you make it sound so much more professional than like just the TV awards. In my mind, TV means television. I mean, it it does. I'm a fancy lady. You are a fancy lady. (laughs) I think also at the awards, didn't Sebastian Stan and Anthony Mackie win? They won for their duo. And I believe Elizabeth Olsen and Katherine Hahn won for uh, Fight. Um, so, you know, Marvel Studios really cleaning it up. it home. Yeah, on the, the MTV Movie and Television Awards. As I would say. Oh, also forgot to shout out, Best Villain went to Katherine Hunt for Marvel Studios' WandaVision, which, I mean, so well earned. It was Agatha all along. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. I want to rewatch all those in my infinite time that I have. Um, uh, yes, we have so much free time. So much time. Uh, yeah, so we we were talking about Marvel Studios Loki. Again, that premieres Wednesday, June 9th, exclusively on Disney+. Plus. Man, I, I can't wait. Next week, we have our 500th episode. We're going to talk about that again, but we get into talking some of the future Marvel Studios original series coming to Disney+, Plus with one of our guests, and 
I'm so hyped. Make sure you're, you're here next week for our 500th episode. But before we get there, we still have more that we want to talk about this week. We've got lots of August comic book news coming from Marvel. Last week, we were able to announce the Kang the Conqueror series. Mm-hmm. But man, this week, we got so much more. Oh, man. Buckets and buckets of dope stuff. Uh, we have, first off, Black Panther number one, written by John Ridley, who is an incredible writer, notably writer of 12 Years a Slave, as well as many other impressive things. He's done some recent Marvel work. Uh, yes. And everyone has blown my freaking face off, which is one of the reasons why I'm so jacked for this. It's just awesome. Um, and then we have Juan Cabal, who's like crushing the game. Beautiful my work. My God. I heard about what the story was in one of the editorial retreats a couple of months ago. And I was just I like speechless and so hyped. You know, what's in, it's interesting because we have the landmark run by Ta-Nehisi Coates, of which course, yeah. wraps up, I believe, next week. I read the, the, the final issue of the run and it's amazing and it's incredible and Brian Stelfreeze comes back and it's it's just oh, wonderful yeah. and it's so difficult to follow up such an important and and really uh elevating series mm-hmm. and you get this what what John and Juan are going to do I think is the perfect way to pivot and do something different while still being incredible and turn some heads I'm very excited yeah um also I can't believe that Immortal Hulk 49 is the penultimate issue of the series because this series has been going on for a lot of years now. Yeah. And it's also just been such an incredible run. Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond the sort of critical acclaim of it, I just think it's one of those books that is bedrock. You know, it's so incredible in in the last few years of books and, and what's been going on. It's like, you like comics, read Immortal Hulk, you know? Yeah, it, it's Immortal Hulk by Al Ewing and Joe Bennett and a bunch of other people is probably my favorite horror comic of all time. Um, yeah. It's just so, it's, so good. it's done so well. It's body horror and like f- page flipping, like reveals and the, like it's a masterclass in how to end an issue. Every mm-hmm. issue is something like you, you get to that last page and it's just, Oh my gosh, what is, what is going on? I can't wait for the next one. And yeah, Al has always had in his head, this is, I'm going to do 50 issues and it's this is what my my story is, and here it is, and he's doing it. I kudos to them for, for yeah. like sticking to the plan. Yeah, seriously, um, it's just really, really an awesome, awesome run. I assume at some point we'll get a big beefy fifty issue edition. I don't know that you can put fifty because it's fifty issues plus there's like omnibus, an omnibus. There's like specials and side stories and things that fit yeah. into it. It's probably closer between all the issues to like 60, 65, give or take. So yeah, you'd I you need at least a couple of omnibuses. All right. Well, I'm ready for my omnibuses. Multiple omnibuses. Okay, I gotta go. Um Ryan, what's the deal with Winter Guard number one. Have you gotten the scoop on this yet? Yeah. So Winter Guard number one, it's really rad. Ryan Cady is the writer and he's uh, he's relatively new, especially for Marvel. His first Marvel work came out this past week. I think it's a Heroes Reborn story. And it was really good. Really, really good. Very excited. Winter Guard are our Russian uh, super team with big Ursa Major, which we love. Big we love him. 
talking surly big, bear big, man big, big bear boy bear boy it's going to be a lot of fun it's going to be cool uh, i'm excited to see them sort of bring the winter guard back into the four art by jan Bazaldua, who they're they've been doing just incredible work i i'm jazzed for this one also like give me a big crazy russian team yeah. of baddies <laughs> why not let's do it let's get in there 100 percent uh also we i, I tease this I think I tease this either here on Marvel's pull list, but Darkhawk number one coming back. I know we have some listeners who are huge Darkhawk fans. Uh, CB Sabolsky, Marvel Comics Editor-in-Chief, also a big Darkhawk fan. But I'm excited because it's going to be written by Kyle Higgins, who Kyle uh, has done some great Winter Soldier stuff, uh, is doing the Ultraman book. And I know... Um, he I, he told me his pitch for the story uh, off on the side a little while ago, and I think it's really cool. It's something different. Um, so I'm jazzed for it. Juan and Ramirez, great artist, so that's going to be cool. Lorraine, did you see the next one on the list? I did. I know that you were excited about it, so oh get into it. <laughs> it's Avengers Tech On by Jim Zub and artist Chamba. Uh, the pitch here, it's a Sentai-inspired action-adventure series produced in partnership with Bandai Namco of Japan. Look, if you love Japanese Spider-Man, if you love Power Rangers, <laughs> if you love things that are good, if you love smiling and and hugs, do you you're like when robots this. fight monsters? Yes, it's going to be all that. If you want that <laughs> in your life, you need Avengers Tech on. I, oh, I'm so jazz. I'm very excited that Runaways is getting a number 100 issue. I love Runaways. It's technically issue 38 of Rainbow Rowell's run with Andre Genole, but also with Chris Anka and Adrian Alfona, who are two artists that are historically incredibly important to Runaways. I mean, so important to that run, just what they've done for fashion and bringing them into the real world. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're an artist who wants to know how to draw people in the real world with new outfits every week, Oof. I mean, honestly, the work that Chris Anka, and specifically because I've spent so much time talking to him mm -hmm. about this, but, you know, a wonderful thing that Adrian Alfona set up in the series was like really using real world fashion because they're teenagers and they're living in the real world. But then Chris Anka like took that to the next level with like, oh, you want to draw outfits for the series? I'm going to give them outfits for every day of the week. Yeah. And it's just continued and it's been so cool. So come on, baby. Runaways 100. Go get it. I love that series. I love Rainbow Rowell. It may be my favorite comic book that we publish. And yes. I read everything and I love a lot of books. I love like the it's it's up there with my favorite X-Men comics right now. It's if you're not reading Runaways, this current series, you're missing out on one of the absolute best comics. You you can get like 30 some odd issues on Marvel Unlimited. You can yeah. binge that and and really see why it's so dang good and why Lorraine and I love it so much. So please, Obsessed. please read Runaways and then pre-order issue 100 for August. Or fight me. Well, yeah. You know what? Lorraine got you. <laughs> they can't find me. I wanted to make a plug this week for Marvel's pull list uh, because we had on artist Adam Kubert and he's in our reading club. We're talking about the Wolverine issues, uh, a couple of Wolverine issues he did, uh, Red, White and Blood, but also a Wolverine issue from the 90s, which is just a bonkers issue. So in the original story, he did multiple gatefold pages. So Whoa. like, I think there's a triple and a quadruple gatefold. So 
it's four pages of one spread of an image. The image goes across four pages or three pages. He did this multiple times in the book and it's wild. And we were talking to him about this in the process and everything. He still has the original art and on wow. the chat, he pulled it out of, and he was like, here, look at it. And we, me and co-host Tucker Marcus were like, holy moly. So Adam was really great and he actually scanned it scanned all the pages for us to show them off. And so you can listen to the podcast, hear us talk about it, but then you can also go to marvel.com and see the original art that Adam allowed us to, to show. It's the first time it's ever been seen in the, the pencil and ink form. And it's, it's mind blowing. Really? That is awesome. That's so cool. You know what else is cool, Ryan? What's that Lorraine? Disneyland Paris, Disney's Hotel New York, The Art of Marvel is going to open June 21st of this year at Disneyland Paris. And you can watch a video right now on marvel.com all about the hotel and you can get a little sneak peek at what it's going to look like when it's open. And it's really, really so fun. It's got gorgeous Marvel prints and artwork. I think there's 350 pieces of artwork that are displayed from comics and film, from 110 different artists from Europe and beyond. I mean, there are at least 50 exclusive pieces at the hotel. So there's just a ton of really incredible stuff. Plus, obviously, it's Disney. So you're immersed in the world of Marvel. I would like to stay there. So everybody else, I hope you're excited. Uh, there's also a great story on Marvel.com this week about the food that's going to be mm. available at uh, Avengers Campus at uh, Disney California Adventure. So that's really cool. There's like if you're if you go to Disney and you like to eat and like to find the really cool stuff to eat, there's a great, great feature on Marvel.com to check that stuff out. Oh, I love Disney. Can't wait to go back. Ryan. Yes. Ryan. There mm. are so many fun toys. Oh. Um, and even though I'm trying to limit my purchasing power at this moment, <laughs> nothing can truly stop me. So let's talk about some Hasbro Marvel Legends. Um, first up, the six-inch Infinity uh, Saga figures are out and about. They're so cool. I'm loving them. Also, this 13-inch Surtur based on Marvel Studios' mm-hmm. Thor Ragnarok. Mm-hmm is sick this boy i need him i need him in my life oh he's a big red and black boy 13 inches of glory he's gonna be a tremendous addition to my collection he's so cool our pal at hasbro ryan ting posted photos on his instagram just showing the scale uh and he was showing the scale next to the firestar figure which is also terrific but like almost double the size of other figures because he's so, so gigantic. It's really, really rad. I very much want this one. Um, There's a whole bunch of great Infinity Saga figures that they've been showing off, especially around Thor. You've got Mm -hmm. Thor and Odin, and they showed off Jon Favreau as Happy Hogan and and Rescue and Captain Marvel. But the Surtur one is the one that really, really got me jazzed. I love the Happy Hogan figure so much um, because he was posed like on his cell phone and it's just like giving me real Jon Favreau on the phone vibes, living up for it. Also, this Infinity Saga two pack of Captain Marvel and Pepper Potts in her rescue armor Mm -hmm. is sick. It's so awesome. And I love that they're like the multiple faces so you can have her sort of like Pepper Potts style or you can have her rescue style. Yeah. Um, super cool, but Ryan, mm-hmm. Ryan, yes. I know everybody loves all of like we had our Hulk hands, then we had our Infinity Gauntlet. It's the Nano Gauntlet. Yep, 
And it's so, so much like Tony Stark's gauntlet in Marvel Studios Avengers Endgame, but it's not like the ones, you know, if anybody's ever tried on those gloves, the previous ones, you know, they have like little rings in them and you can move your fingers and it pulls on it and it puppets the fingers, even though your fingers aren't technically in them. But this is more like a real glove. Yeah. So the other two, I mean, you th- if you think about it, one was fitting on Thanos's hand, one was fitting on mm-hmm. Hulk's hand. Right. So they they had to be larger and that, that sense of scale is so cool. But this is the one that Tony used. And the thing that I lost my mind about when I first saw this is that it's snappable. You yeah. can actually do the snap because you can fit your hand in there and it does it. There's also like sounds and features and different things. I, man, uh, Hasbro killing the game with these Marvel killing Studios. Killing the game. Pieces. And also if you do like a Tony Stark Iron Man cosplay, mm-hmm. this is your gym jam. Or if you just you have to like this. mow the lawn and yeah. you need a special. Also your gym jam. Uh, yeah, this is, I'm going to. I'm going to dad it up with this. Oh, my God. I just like had this vision of you wearing your sleeveless shirt, listening to your rock music with two nano gloves on mowing. And that that's in my head now. And it, it exists. I will do a photo shoot if, uh, <laughs> if if need be. Anybody wants to to put that up on, on Marvel's Instagram. Please I'm wear happy. Catherine Grayson a Bjorn while you do it. <laughs> that's all I that I ask. I don't know if she'll fit in those. We have like three of them. I don't know if she, she's, she's kind of She's like now. a toddler now, so yeah. maybe it's too late. Yeah, it's, it's all right. Uh, man, we still have more that we're jazzed about because this week we finally got the trailer for Marvel's Wastelanders Old Man Star-Lord, which is... If you don't know, it's a brand new uh, podcast series. The first two episodes are actually coming Tuesday, June 1st on the SiriusXM app and desktop player, plus everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all set, you know, in the classic style of an old man Marvel story, like old man Wolverine style. Uh, It's set in an apocalyptic alternate future of the Marvel Universe where the villains have unfortunately won. And now the Guardians of the Galaxy are not doing great. (laughs) Uh, So we have Timothy Busfield, who's playing Star-Lord, Chris Elliott who we all know and love from Schitt's Creek, as Rocket. We have Patrick Page as Craven the Hunter, Dylan Baker as Doom, with performances by... Vanessa, Vanessa Williams. Vanessa Williams, icon, queen, yeah. absolute queen. Asif Monvi, who is amazing, so mm-hmm. funny, uh, and Danny Glover, because I am too old for this. Yes. yes. Stuff. Nailed it. So good. Uh, the series is written by Benjamin Percy, who's a pal to Lorraine and I and mm-hmm. uh, writes amazing comics for us. But he also wrote uh, the Wolverine podcast and he's just an incredible dude. Also might actually be Wolverine. I know. I know. He if lives he, in if, the woods. He's got a very low voice. Yeah. If he posts pictures of himself chopping wood and he's just like. You know, half man, half warrior. It's great. Uh, <laughs> half this man, is, half warrior. That means he's both half people. <laughs> think about it. It's a, the first series in this six-part audio epic. Get ready. Tuesday, June 1st, uh, the first two episodes premiere. Yeah, what a way to wrap up Memorial Day weekend. Get out of there. Get into June 1st. Wait, Ryan, you know what? What? This is so good that I think everybody should take a listen to the trailer right now. Enjoy. Sometimes the bad guys win. The bad guys won. You're saying they're dead. You're certain of that? A war zone. Coordinated effort on the part of Captain America is dead. Black Widow is dead. Thor, Iron Man is dead. 
Rocket? Yes. Earth officially sucks. I'm Peter Quill, but you can call me Star-Lord. You are a guardian of the galaxy. A long time ago, a long, long time ago, we were the guardians of the galaxy. But uh, that was before, and well, this is now. Even if you still consider yourself the guardians, you're 30 years too late to make any difference here. It's a quest. The Guardian's epic quest for cosmic glory. This mission of atonement you're on, it's gonna get us both killed. It'll be fine. I got my six shooters and my booster boot. Ugh, the last time you tried to fly in those things, you ended up with a concussion and a broken arm. Before this is all over, I'm gonna prove I'm just as good as I ever was. Just you wait. Yeah, just give me a sec. Not the walk, man. It'll take me to my happy place. Hang on. You really have the attention span of a toddler. All right. Okay. All set. We can proceed. Marvel Entertainment and Sirius XM present Marvel's Wastelanders, Old Man Star-Lord. Starring Timothy Busfield as Star-Lord, Chris Elliott as Rocket, Patrick Page as Craven the Hunter, Dylan Baker as Doom with performances by Vanessa Williams, Asif Mandi, and Danny Glover. Explore the apocalyptic alternate future of the Marvel Universe in Marvel's Wastelanders, Old Man Star-Lord. The first series in the thrilling new multi-part audio epic premieres Tuesday, June 1st on the SiriusXM app and desktop player, plus everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Learn more at SiriusXM.com Wastelanders. All right, Lorraine, I'm excited because our interview this week is one we did a little while ago, and it's flippin' fantastic. We have on the show this week Julia and Eric Leewald, authors of X-Men, The Art and Making of the Animated Series. Uh, Julia was a writer on the show, and she really has been sort of like the keeper of the flame for everything about mm -hmm. X-Men, The Animated Series. And Eric Leewald, he was the showrunner for the show. And man, I had a blast with this yeah. interview. And they've written several books uh, based on the show, like previously on X-Men and X-Men, the art and making of the animated series. Uh, so they were just founts of knowledge on all things our childhood. Yeah, it's um, yeah, we, we kind of geek out like crazy in this uh, in this interview. So please enjoy our chat about X-Men, the animated series. Previously on This Week in Marvel. Lorraine, you and I have been talking about X-Men, the animated series, fairly often mm -hmm. just because we're big fans. And, you know, when we have guests on the show, we always ask how they got into Marvel, their origin stories. And how many times have we heard from a guest, a celebrity, a musician, an artist, someone in the industry, or even a comedian, that they got into Marvel because of X-Men, the animated series? Basically every week. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So with that said, we are extremely excited and thankful to have on the show this week, Eric and Julia Leewald, who worked on the show. We're going to get into all that, but they have a book out called X-Men, The Art and Making of the Animated Series, which is a ding dang delight. Julia and Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. My God, this is so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. It's really exciting for us also. And something we always like to ask folks is, 
What is your Marvel origin story? What got you into Marvel? What was your introduction to this world, which you've had such an impact on? Well, if I were to say as a writer, X-Men, the animated series, because <laughs> that was <laughs> literally for me, working as an animation writer, my first opportunity to be exposed to that world. I mean, you got to go in the Wayback Machine and realize that in the 1980s, 90s, there was no internet. There was no immediate access of information. Things weren't open 24 hours. And comic culture was different back then. Mm. It was not easy access as it's become. And so for me, really, my first opportunity came with the opportunity to write for X-Men, the animated series. And boy, you jump on that train as fast as it's leaving the station. And there you go. So I was a writer on it. And Eric was the showrunner in charge of all the stories on it. Yeah. My introduction to Marvel Comics, this is the first time I've admitted this in public. Back in 1967, when I was very young, I had a wonderful health teacher in the seventh grade. And the last couple of three days of the school year, when there was nothing to do and we finished the book, she brought in a huge box of her teenage son's comic books. And they were probably two-thirds marble. It's 1967, so there's lots of cool stuff from the early 60s. And I admit now to her and the world, and I feel sorry about it, I lifted three or four of those comics and took them home, and they did not get back into the box at the end of the class. That has weighed on me all these years. But yeah, those are mostly Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. So I really, when we started the X-Men, really was not familiar with them. I knew most of the Marvel books, but that was just one that I hadn't lifted from my health teacher. Even then, though, mid-1960s, X-Men is vastly different from the X-Men that you guys would help bring into the hearts and minds of so many fans. You know, I, you talked a little bit about what y'all did on the series. Eric, could you explain a little bit about what that means to be showrunner? And I feel like that term is used more now than it probably was. It didn't exist back then. It's complicated. What in current terminology, like 2021 terminology on a live action show, the showrunner would be the guy, okay, we're hiring David Kelly to do a show and he's going to decide what kind of stories to tell, what the world's going to look like, what the tone's going to be and have a hand in the casting. And basically it's his show and it's just a hundred percent. It lives or dies with him. Well, it's a little bit more split in animation. I had the responsibility of looking at 30 years of comic books and deciding how do we tell the show? There may be a dozen different ways to do it. It could have been more battle-oriented. It could have made them younger. It could have been funnier. There wasn't much humor in the show. There are a hundred choices to make with that much material. And so that's the first stage. You develop the show for television, which means you make all those decisions about what you want the show to be like. In animation, since it's so fast and the budgets were so tight, there were certain parts of that that other people... Like, I had a say in the casting, but somebody else would supervise, you know, who came in, got the tapes to all of us, and we all kind of weighed in on it. But that wasn't my final decision. It's kind of like I'm the showrunner of the stories. So I laid out the world. I and my dear writing partner from all the way back to college, Mark Edens, laid out the first season of stories and chose all the writers to work on it and then worked with each of the writers to write all 13 of the episodes. So I was heavily involved in all of that. But in the meantime, 
Larry Houston was working with all the artists to make all the storyboards beautiful and dynamic and interpret what we'd handed him. And as I say, somebody else was directing the voices. So it's a little more spread out in animation. And if you look at the history of animation, there are all sorts of different ways of saying the person they hire to set the tone for the show and to make sure everybody's on the same page for the whole show. And that was the responsibility. And some people in that position do a lot of writing. But I always felt that if I had a major hand in developing the show Bible, which lays out what the characters' relationships are and how the world works, and the pilot script, then if I just helped everybody else write the rest of the show, that would be the best use of my time. So if you look, I've got maybe two writing credits out of 76. And it's not that I didn't help write all 76 episodes. It's just I had my job, the writers had their job, and together we made the scripts as tight as we could. So Julia, what was your role like every episode? I got to be a fly on the wall when Eric and Mark Edens were crafting the hybrid thing of what is an X-Men story? How is it well told best for television? And then what stories have been told in the X-Men comics that could perhaps work in TV? They are very different mediums. I got tapped that first season to write part one of the two-parter, Days of Future Past. (laughs) And back then there was, in the world of the X-Men, there was no magic go-to-the-office writer's room. It literally was Eric and Mark sitting around our, our dining room table teasing out what those first 13 stories would be. And then as every one of the the writers were assigned a story, a premise to go to script, you just took it, went back to your 10 pound computer and, you know, began writing it yourself. There was not a lot of opportunity to call each other and say, what are you doing with this one? What are you doing with that thing? There literally wasn't time. Yeah. So we did the first 26 that way. Then we started doing some more adaptations, but the first season it was set up what the world is because We were warned 85% of the audience, TV audience on Saturday morning wouldn't know who the X-Men were and wouldn't understand the mutant idea. And we had to lay a a lot of groundwork those first 13 to say, okay, here's here's Magneto and what he stands for, and here's Apocalypse and what he stands for, and here's some secondary people, but with a background arc of somebody nasty is doing something with the Sentinels. And that kind of held it all together. And that was a really important creative decision on our part because it made us focus more on what it meant to be a mutant in human society. But also, conceptually, it was much better for us to have a living embodiment of human intolerance coming after Sentinels as the background for the whole series, that first year. And that beautifully set up the two different camps, uh, Magneto on one side and Professor X on the other. And just looking back on the series, It makes my heart swell just how much Magneto and Professor X truly loved each other, truly cared for each other throughout the whole arc, but had genuinely authentic different takes on how to deal with the mutant situation and humanity's reaction to it. Yeah, I think part of why the show connected with with Lorraine and I and, and everyone else who was watching it at a certain age is it didn't talk down to us and it with the drama of it all the humanity of it all felt real and and it hooked us on top of the amazing costumes and the characters and the silliness of like some accents and characters and like everything that makes marvel and x-men so special is there in the show which i think was really important so thank you for that i'd like to give a credit to where credit is due and that is a woman named margaret lesh who was the first president of 
the Fox Kids Network. Fox Kids was the new upstart network, and they were trying to stake a claim, and Margaret Lesh really believed in the property of the X-Men. She had been at Marvel herself for a number of years. Then when she became president of Fox Kids, that was one of her first edicts, is that I'm going to make this series and I'm going to make it right. So all credit to her. That's an interesting thing, right? So I assume you guys were approached about an X-Men project. How did you decide on what characters you wanted to be on the series? And then how did you build that team? What were the dynamics you were looking to create? And again, this was with 30 years of X-Men existence, Eric, when you got tapped to come up with all this. Yeah, there were, I think, three sets of X-Men books going at the time. And we counted there'd been 29 different people that had officially been X-Men in different teams. So we had a lot to pick from. And two or three of the people we thought were very new, people like Jubilee and Gambit, were not traditional X-Men. They just popped onto the scene. Uh, Marvel had three or four people they wanted to push. Obviously, Everybody wanted Wolverine on the show and Cyclops because he's been with the team forever. So starting with those two, they mentioned, okay, we want to have a teenager. They didn't want Kitty because of Pride of the X-Men had failed. So they got Jubilee and she was newer. Storm and Rogue, to us and the people drawing it, the artists all knew these characters by heart. They are all incredible fanboys. Mm -hmm. So they had opinions. But one of the things for animation is flying is a lot easier and cheaper to film than walking. (laughs) so getting flying characters is great and then we also thought okay if you're doing this for animation who are the biggest characters as far as their powers you know rogue can pick up a school bus and throw it through a building that is animation friendly and that was about the core that we were given if you look at early drawings there are only four or five that are focused in the drawings along with professor x and as we started writing the stories mark and i just discovered that it was really hard to tell the stories without Professor X as a main character. And it was really hard to tell the stories without Jean because she had a unique relationship with all the different characters in the team. Then the thing happened with Beast, that Beast is so different that he started appearing in more and more and more episodes. To sum it all up, we chose characters that were as different from each other as we could, both in character and in powers, so that it wasn't like seven big gruff guys beating on each other. It wasn't going to be WWE. It was going to be eight very, very different people in a semi-dysfunctional but loving family that lived in the same house. And to point out, too, there was no pressure to soften any of the female characters' powers, abilities, none of that. They were just as out there and strong and, in my opinion, had some of the stronger powers. Massive shout-out needs to go to the person who was in charge of broadcast standards and practices at Fox Kids at the time without whom we wouldn't have lost Morph. And and that's a woman named Avery Coburn, who understood what the X-Men stories could be. And I swear, when Eric and Mark were saying, oh, okay, hero's journey, um, we're going to have to kill an X-Men, we're going to, and I'm, oh, good luck. You know, <laughs> it's like, that's not going to happen. And But Eric, you were able to make the case legitimately that this needed to happen to establish the parameters that things were real in this magical world. People could be hurt. And for the record... He was supposed to stay dead. God bless Morph. He was supposed to stay dead. <laughs> yeah, people know now because of the, the we've explained it in our books. But Morph was brought back because young audiences loved him. 
we made him as sympathetic as we humanly could. We made him the only person who could make Wolverine laugh. We made him this sweet, funny guy. And so we get that call from the network saying, uh, guys, I know this was crucial to kill this guy, but could you please bring him back? <laughs> the kids all love him. So that's why he came back. Uh, I have so many paths that I want to go down as we converse, but I do want to say also that we have been talking about a lot of things that are discussed in previously on the X-Men, as well as in X-Men, the art and making of the animated series. So listeners, please pick up those books. You get a lot of the information in the stories. There's a lot in there, but I do also want to ask, like right before the X-Men, you guys were working at Disney. Is that how you met? That's yep. how we met. <laughs> had offices next to each other. That's how it all began. That's how we met. Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers was my first show there. Wrote a lot of those. Darkwing Duck, Goof Troop, Tailspin. That whole Disney afternoon was tremendous fun. And at the time, it was kind of a three-year contract deal. And then it was like its own magical Disney graduate school kind of thing. You know, three years and then out into the cold, dark world of freelance, which we both jumped into just as we were having our first child. Oh. But we knew that. <laughs> that was a part of the plan. Uh, yeah. And so then entered the freelance universe and... Um, various jobs from that point on. <laughs> we could literally talk about this series all day because we love it. But I want to ask you about X-Men, the art and making of the animated series, your new book. How did it all come about to work on this project? And what were you most excited to share with everyone? I will say that I've been carrying the flag on behalf of good old X-Men, the animated series for a few years now. And an anniversary of the show was coming up, and I sort of poked Eric. I said, we have every script, we have every storyboard, we have all the notes in boxes above our garage back in the good old days when things got printed out, and we kept it all. I said, if you don't start telling the story of the X-Men, I don't know if it's going to get told, and I don't know if anyone's going to have the opportunity to remember it then. So Eric picked up that ball and ran with it. Yeah, the first book, the previously on X-Men, back then we started doing the interviews for that early in 2015. And we asked around, and at the time, the rights were split among two or three different people, and mm -hmm. there wasn't any interest from the partial rights holders to support a book. So we just did it ourselves, interviewed it everybody ourselves, and then found a publisher, a small publisher here in California. Jacob Sprout Media, thanks to them. So we did the first book on our own, previously on X-Men, which is a really detailed history interview, just about everybody who worked on it all the cast and crew and artists. So come to 2018, Marvel's got all the rights back to, to the TV show. And our book's been out for a little while, for about four or five months, and people seem to enjoy it. And I get an email from Marvel, and I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> you know, they're going to beat me up for writing a book without their permission. And it wasn't that. It was this wonderful guy, Sven Larson. Ah, Sven! Yes, yeah. who wrote, said, look, now that the rights are back together, we want to do a book with all the art in it. We want to do a book that properly shows off why everybody fell in love with the show visually. And so this was because he called and asked us to do it. Oh, my God. And, and getting that call and going, oh, my God, we're not getting shut down. The, the world's opened up to us now. And jumping at that opportunity, but realizing... It's 20 plus years later, and this was not computerized back then. So can we even find material? That became a big issue. Yeah, we were really scared because if you add up, you know, it's all hand painted. 
which is just amazing when you think of the quantity of stuff. I did the math and they did a couple million hand paintings for those 76 episodes. That's how much effort and how many people and how much artistry had to go into this. And out of that couple million, there's maybe a few hundred left in people's basements, uh, art galleries like Van Eaton, who lent us a bunch. And so when we started going around looking for beautiful color material to use in the book, we started getting scared. We don't have any. We didn't get any cells. We had producer friends that saved a few and some that were being thrown out and somebody got them. Luckily, a lot of the artists kept their design work the way we kept our scripts. So there were artists that said, okay, yeah, you know, the character designs, I've got them for all 76 episodes. So luckily, there were some artists that uh, saved us because if we hadn't found the material, we could have written as nice a book as you want. And nobody would love this book because it's all about the images. To see some of these pieces and for us for the first time to be able to put our hands on this stuff and go, my God, this is gorgeous. The background animation, the things that you don't even think about, the different layers that had to go into this. There is some beautiful material that goes into the making of a show like this. And we were able to find a lot of it, for which we are eternally grateful. Two stories about the show that relate to Marvel. So one with Sven, love Sven, great dude. And the fact that he was the one who called you makes me really happy because that's no BS. When he says that the people loved your book, there are numerous dog-eared copies that were floating around Marvel offices. So that's true. That's all true. When, when they called you up and said, we love the book, that is completely factual. And then two, when it comes to the art and the sales and stuff, and Lorraine, you'll remember this, that in... Two offices ago at Marvel in, in the headquarters in New York, there was a little nook that was for Marvel animation stuff. And there were some cells and some drawings from Spider-Man. And then opposite that were a number of production pieces from X-Men. And there was a piece of the juggernaut punching through the other juggernaut. And then there's this one large cell of a bunch of like very lesser known mutants standing together. And I would always give tours of the Marvel office to guests. And so I would always stop at that area. And the one shot of the lesser known characters has, and I, I realize my love for this character is partially because of the show. It's a character named Peepers. He has giant yeah. eyes like this. Yeah. And, and so in like the last two months or so, Peepers has shown back up in the Marvel comics and I've been so happy. And it's like, <laughs> it, it makes me think of the animated series and, and makes me think of The Office and all these different things. It's memory works in wonderful ways. And let's give shout out to Will Minio and to Larry Houston, who on the art side of this are responsible for the art side of this. And Larry Houston for those magnificent, let's call them Easter eggs, because he and Will knew the books chapter and verse and were able to figure out how to kind of slide some of those characters in. And here we are years later, and that's Peepers because of the folks on the art side, because of Larry. So as you started working on the book, were there any things that, I mean, obviously you know the show very well, but were there any things that surprised you or, you know, had changed over time? Yeah, my knee-jerk reaction is we had no idea how much work it was to produce one episode. So we were talking to Stephanie Graciano, who was the lady in charge of making sure all 76 got produced. 
whether the scripts were good, bad, or indifferent, whether <laughs> the artists they got for those boards were doing great, whether the team they got overseas was the A team, the B team, or the C team, or if it was subcontracted to somebody's basement, she'd get the material back and she'd have to be the one to make sure this is going to make a full show. And it was her company that produced all of them. Talking to her and talking to Dana Booten, who was one of the two production managers, just the thousands of pounds of stuff that would get sent to Korea and go, gone through and the voices and the, the lists and all the stuff that these hundreds and hundreds of people would have to slave over to make sure that there'd be enough material to animate and would get back to you so that you'd finish one a week and have them for sure. Just we were putting seven days a week into getting the scripts right. We had no idea. It was magic. Whatever they were doing over the production side, fine. It was wasn't our concern. It wasn't anything we had any say in. So just knowing what they went through, that was one of the nice things about interviewing the actors as well. Got a whole new perspective. When I'd written the first book, I'd written most of the history of the show before I interviewed the actors. And after I interviewed the actors, I went back and rewrote because I got this whole new perspective about how the show worked through their eyes. And now this book, listen to Stephanie and Dana, left me in awe. That was the new, big new thing for me in this book. I would agree with that. It's very easy to forget how many people had to get their jobs done right for this to keep rolling forward. It's a nice thing to be a part of. It's a nice thing, however, whatever my role may be in it. It's just truly an honor to be a part of this thing that seems to matter to so many people because I know what that feels like and I'm deeply, deeply honored. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you are the flag bearer in many ways, you know, running the social X-Men TIS, <laughs> Julia, I, which I, you know, appreciate our interactions, but also just like how much you guys are out there and excited and really like supporting the fandom, which then supports you guys back, which is cool. Thinking about this too, as we were talking, I was also... Have you all been aware of sort of the memification of <laughs> aspects of the show? One of my most used animated gifs is Wolverine walking off the Blackbird and punching Scott in the stomach. You know, there's that, or there's Wolverine looking at the- Wolverine crush. Yeah, the, you know, the, so many of those. At what point did you start to see that and be like, what's going on here? When previously on X-Men came out, it's like, well, it's the two of us. Okay, I will try and figure out what Twitter is. You know, because I think that's the way to maybe reach out to people and let them know about this thing. But then entering that that space and seeing the memes and going, oh, these aren't mean spirited. People aren't being mean about it. They're they're using this at it from a place of fun or silliness or something. It's like, well, OK, that's nice. That's really nice. And sort of building on that in our little corner of things, having fun with that, stunned by the volume of it out there. <laughs> Yeah. Truly, Wolverine Crush with that photograph, there is a photograph for any occasion yes. you can find out there. <laughs> My personal yeah. favorite was, because we're Green Bay Packers shareholders, thank you very much. I was born in Wisconsin, but the one with Wolverine and Aaron Rodgers, it's like, oh, that speaks to me. I understand that. So it's been fun and, and very rewarding. Yeah, it's been all her maintaining it for the last three or four years. But one of the astounding things, given what a mixed experience social media can be and that the web can be. We've been to maybe three dozen cons now over the last four years. And we have yet to have one person say one snarky thing to us. It's been a hundred percent just love and affection, which is 
you'd think you'd get at least a few people coming. Why did you do that with that character? How could you screw that up that bad? But it has never happened. We've been so fortunate. I was just going to ask, how often does somebody come up to you and ask, does a mall baby chili fries? (laughs) (laughs) Not on a daily basis, but at cons, that does get brought up occasionally. Yeah. Uh, Iconic. She does eat chili fries because I, when we did our very first Twitter sphere, hey, watch along thing, I went back through and found, by God, there are, when she's playing that video game and is about to zap it, she's got some chili fries with her right there on the console. So, yeah. So, yes, she does. And we had proof. (laughs) I have to ask, what was your reaction the first time you heard the song? Because I think, you know, kids of our generation, when we hear that song, there's Pavlovian response, you know? (laughs) I still hum it. I like just, it's just in my brain. Ron Wasserman deserves all the credit in the world. And he, he's the guy who came up with that and came up with Power Rangers theme song. So, I mean, boy, he's, he is in the heads of a lot of young people. But so, yes, Ron Wasserman was working for Saban at the time as a composer. Yeah. And, and so we can take no credit for this. This, this happened in, in one of the other silos of frantic, overworked people during the time we were writing the script. But Will Minio and Sidney Iwander were the two kind of supervising Ron while he was doing this and driving him crazy because that was this, what you heard was like the 23rd version of that. There'd been a few pitches earlier on with some silly little songs, you know, and we are the X-Men, da, 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 whatever. <laughs> Those were put aside and they pretty much decided, okay, we'll do something instrumental. And I think in the back of our heads for people our age, the, the people that worked on it who were in their 30s at the time, was like Johnny Quest opening. So that was kind of the basic idea that they were going into it with. And then they just pushed it and pushed it. And I see some of these notes from Will saying, you know, it's sounding good, but it's just not X-Men enough yet. Can you put another layer of drums or can you push it harder, garage band it harder? And so at one point, finally, you know, one came in, Will and Sydney evidently looked at Ron and said, that's it. And so it's just like there was this moment of recognition. Okay, you've done exactly what we've been imagining. So it's those two guys and Ron that made that happen. And the thing that, again, this is something in this book that I found out more about that at least as much amazes me, because that was a long, drawn-out process to make that perfect, was that Will and Larry did the, the storyboard for the opening sequence in a basically cumulative about three days of work. Unbelievable. Because it's so tight and so to the point and so illustrates this whole world that we don't know about. Larry did a pass in about a day and a half, got some notes from Margaret and from Will. Will added about a third of it and Larry polished the other two thirds and they were done. So it's like three days work and you've got this thing that is just immaculate as far as introducing a world that we were worried would be hard to follow and people wouldn't understand, but you get it after the title. Yeah, I, I remember I was hosting an X-Men panel, comic X-Men panel some years ago, and on the panel was uh, one of our editors, Jordan D. White. And Jordan now, he runs the X-Men office. He is the main editor in charge of X-Men comics, but he's, you know, same age as Lorraine and I and, and grew up watching the show, but he plays the ukulele and he always brings his ukulele to the conventions. And he had it on the panel. We were in an X-Men panel. And I, I said, Jordan, you got your ukulele. 
can you play the X-Men theme song? And he said, yes, as long as the audience sings along. It's a room of 500 people and comic book writers and artists and all of us up on the panel. And he's playing it on his ukulele and the entire audience is doing it with him. <laughs> and it was just, everybody was just happy. It just brought such yeah. joy. So again, oh, it's, it's really wonderful. That's magical. How many years later? And it still can get that, like you said, Pavlovian response. It's like, oh, excitement's about to happen. Excitement's happening right now. So as we get ready to release you back into the wild, because we've taken <laughs> a lot of your time, as people go to pick up the book, what do you hope readers really take away from the experience? I'm going to say that I hope there can be perhaps a newfound appreciation for the effort that went into making the X-Men animated series from everybody, that everybody was doing their darndest to put forth their best work from a place of real affection for this. And Eric and I worked on a lot of shows. Sometimes it hits, sometimes it doesn't. There's no magic formula. There isn't. But everything came together for X-Men, the animated series, in a way that we can all be proud of years later and, and look back on with great affection now. The thing that struck me was how rare it is, the magic, when, you know, when you've tried to be part of so many different shows and you see a lot of talented people putting a lot of effort into them. Most of the time, it's not slacking that causes the problems. It's just there's so many places where a show can go wrong that it's like lightning in a bottle. And you're so thankful when, oh, it's all come together. We all have our favorite shows. And you don't realize there have been thousands and thousands of other attempts to make similar shows. And some of them never even get on the air. But even the ones that get on the air... Most of them are okay, and you don't, you've never seen them, and you never will see them. But then there's those few that just become special, and we have no clue how that works because it's not we're not different people on different shows. We're working just as hard. I think we're just as talented or untalented on either one. <laughs> but all the right people came together at the right time in the business with the right kind of property to be based on, and everything came together and went right, and we don't know how to repeat it. <laughs> We'd be happy to try. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's frustrating, but it's wonderful. That's a feeling I get when I think back about doing all the different shows, that this one worked. Lightning in a bottle, that's what it was. So everybody definitely go out, pick up X-Men, the art and making of the animated series. Pick up previously on X-Men, follow X-Men TAS on your social media, and of course, Go to Disney Plus. You can watch X-Men the Animated Series as well as a number of other shows that Julia and Eric have worked on across the years. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is like, we, we got a good library of y'all's work. So it's pretty nice. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for having us on to talk about this. Really appreciate that. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Lorraine. What a wild ride. That was so fun. Oh my gosh. Uh, truly just kids in a candy shop, having a good old time eating and if candy. And you, if you haven't picked up previously on X-Men and X-Men, the art and making of the animated series, both those books are really great mm -hmm. just pieces of information and sort of archives for one of probably one of the most important cartoons I would say ever. It's like, yeah. if you think about it and how many people we talk to who are Marvel fans who then took that fandom to new levels, you know, a lot of it is because of that show. So kudos to them. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Um, also, Ryan, I'm just going to say kudos to us and, and more specifically you, because next week is the 500th episode. Uh, yeah. Ryan, you've been doing this for 28 years. Yep. 28 sweet, sweet years. And I've only been doing it for 23. So, yeah. But uh, we're going to have some amazing folks on the show next week, including maybe some of you guys. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. Uh, next week, we have folks from Marvel Studios, Marvel Games, talking about Marvel, like the audio podcast and Marvel Comics. But as Lorraine mentioned, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we've gotten a couple of recordings already from some of our favorites. Uh, we want to hear recordings of you with a favorite This Week in Marvel memory, just Something we'd love to hear from you. And we want to put you on the show in one of our biggest episodes ever. Be really, yeah. really, really fun. You can always tweet us your answers just like you normally do with the hashtag this week in Marvel, or you can email them to twinpodcast at marvel.com if you have an audio clip. Uh, or you could just send us a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash this week in Marvel. But please make sure to tell us okay to read or okay to play on the show mm -hmm. um, so that we know that we can share them because you guys, of course, are the heart of the show. You're why we do it. Um, and we thank you for supporting us through 500 episodes. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, I, I it's wild. We've been talking about this 500th episode for a long time. Yeah, and it's actually here. And then the week after that, we just keep rolling. We can't stop. All right, let's uh, move on. Let's finish up this episode with our community section because last week we asked who your favorite character is from X-Men, the animated series. Uh, we got a bunch of great tweets and messages from y'all. So the first one came in from Robert Bobby Drake at Iceman Bobby. I don't think that's really Iceman, but we'll go with it. At Iceman Bobby says, I know who you think I'd pick, but the only correct answer is Jubilee. For every kid who's ever been overlooked or underestimated, there was Jubes showing how to firework with what you've got, giving 100% heart, soul, and spark. Queen of the glow up. Uh, truly in the spirit of Katy Perry, baby, she's a firework. You know, truly. Okay. That's a song, Ryan. Okay. I, I heard uh, an Adele cover that sounded like Bauhaus, and I've never heard an Adele song, but I really like the Bauhausy version of it. The end. It's the completely ignoring pop culture for me. Yep. <laughs> um, next up, we have Nikki Freeman at Mile High Nerd, which says, I absolutely love Gambit and how he can play both sides. I also love the chemistry. Bohomoshe. <laughs> Beignet. All right. We've got one from Victoria Conlu at Vicky Marie. Vicky says, can we please get some recognition for yes. Jubilation Lee and the underappreciated BAMF that she is? Hell yeah, Victoria. You better believe we love that Jubilee. Does a mall baby eat chili fries? Come Does on now. Does a mall baby eat chili fries? The best. Yeah. Ash Lemonade at Ash Lemonade says, the one and only Storm. P.S. I am hopeful that her long overdue introduction into the MCU will be incredible. We need the goddess. My body is ready. We would love that. <laughs> Look, all I know is Storm is the greatest. We have we love her. 50 years of comics and great appearances in the, the animated series. I love Storm. Yeah, get your Storm right now in the series. Yeah. Brian Donaldson at Yuzikalele says, Everyone knows the best X-Men character is Rogue, sugar. Yeah, sugar. Amazing. Uh, Ross Albright at the Ross Albright says Cyclops. He was Xavier's first student groomed to be the next great leader of mutant kind and must display an immense level of control at all times. All while a furry goblin openly defies his orders and unsuccessfully tries to steal his girlfriend. 
Yeah, but he's still Cyclops. Watch World Tigger at Sakitami says, "Why, Storm, Mistress of the Elements?" Um, I just see her with yep. the lightning at the opening sequence. Oh, so dramatic those reads, and I, I love it so much. All right, we've got a couple of emails in here. And the first is an email from Colin. And Colin says, my favorite moment from the animated series was in part three of the Phoenix Saga. This is a moment that perfectly captures the gravity of a situation by having characters we perceive as strong get completely outmatched. Juggernaut is giving X-Men the business until this strange alien named Gladiator shows up. Juggernaut gets a free punch in him and it has absolutely no effect. My jaw dropped as a kid. He handles Juggernaut and the X-Men with ease. Soon after, Jean Grey as the Phoenix makes quick work of Gladiator. We learn there is a force who is stronger than Gladiator and presumably the Phoenix that the X-Men will have to stop. Thank you, Colin. I love that. Like recounting that and that escalation of events is so crucial. And I think we all had that moment of like watching the show and being like, they're so great. Oh my God, that one's so great. Oh my God, that one's so great. <laughs> it's awesome. The best. Uh, next up, we have an email from Aiden. Hi again, it's Aiden, 11 years old and still in California. Last year, I really got into Marvel, and on my search for everything Marvel, I discovered one of the best series ever, the X-Men animated series. I loved all the characters, but I can only choose one, so my favorite character is the fierce Phoenix Flame herself, Jean Grey. I chose her because... First of all, she is probably the most powerful person on the team. Second, I loved the Phoenix Saga, season three, episodes three through seven, and Dark Phoenix, season three, 10 through 13. They were straight fire, pun intended. With her power, she can basically do anything. Finally, I love how she could be snotty and mean about it, being like, I'm stronger than all of you, and I'm the boss of you now, but she isn't. She is calm, kind, and compassionate. That's what I love about Jean Grey. Sincerely, Aiden. I love emails from Aiden so much. I do, too. It's the best. Um, Aiden, I hope that you're getting A++ in your English class because you are an excellent writer. Yes, truly. Uh, Remarkable. Better than I think either of us were at 11 years old, so kudos to you. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's it. That's a wrap. That's a big four ninety nine. Yeah, can you believe it? Next week, five hundred. Wow! Wow! We're doing it Uh, again. If you have favorite memories, you can send uh, audio clips to us at twinpodcast.marvel.com. You can tweet videos or audio to us at Agent M and and Lorraine Sink. Hashtag This Week in Marvel. Uh, We'll get to when we want to share them on the show next week. It's going to be a big one. It's going to be a big boy, but we're ready for it. Yeah. And this episode of This Week in Marvel is produced by Alexis Williams, Zachary Goldberg, Lorraine Sink, and Ryan Panagos with help from Megan Bagala. Our audio development manager is Brad Barton. And Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And special thanks to Aiden. Just Aiden. Best. The best. You know what? Aiden is like leading the charge for some of our amazing listeners who we just love you guys. Thanks, Aiden. Thanks, everybody else. I'm Ryan. I'm Lorraine. And this is Marvel. Your universe. 